morning. For the scripture reading, please turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 14 through 32. Romans chapter 1. Verses 14 through 32. The Apostle speaks this. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. 
Please pray with me. Father God, we're so grateful to be gathered together this morning as one body, brothers and sisters in the same family. Lord, open our hearts, our ears, our minds this morning to understand this great plan of salvation that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to us. Help us understand, Father, where we stand in it and how we stand in it because of you, because of Jesus. I'm sure each one of us, Father, in some way or another can see ourselves in this list. That without you, Father, this is where we are. When we refuse to hear your truth, when we refuse to follow your ways, Lord, bless your people this morning as we learn more and more about the magnitude of what you've done, the otherworldliness of what you've done on our behalf, and help us, Lord, to praise you for it. Bless our brother, Jamie, as he comes and speaks and teaches us the word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I forget, um, trustees, Paul Miller would like to meet with you after the service right up here in the corner, if you could, please. Well, this is, uh, this is the passage here that uh, really hits home in a lot of ways, and really is not politically correct, is it? Because truth is never politically correct according to culture, truth is truth, and God's truth stands. And uh, these verses that we're going to focus on, verses 18 through 32, really show us the state of every human heart and exposes the heart. To show how it fits into this book here, I want to remind us again so we understand this context here, because context is key. It's important to understand the book. And Paul writes this letter here embedding his points with one another here and connecting them all throughout the letter here. But his overarching aim is actually very practical. He takes theological truths, very deep, heavy truths, so that he can have a practical purpose for the outcome of the progress and multiplication of the gospel. He's the Apostles Gentiles. So in a nutshell, here's what it is. He wants the church in Rome, these house churches he mentions in chapter 16, he wants their assistance on his way to Spain. Those people who live in Spain, part of the Roman Empire, are barbarians. They wouldn't have spoken Koine Greek, which Paul would have written in. They would have spoken Latin, which the Romans, of course, in Rome spoke. And his letter is introducing and preparing the church for this mission. But he understands that there's some roadblocks in the way for the furtherance of the gospel in this particular church. This church that he wants to be like a second Antioch. You think of the church in Antioch in Acts 13 that sent Paul out. He wants Rome to be a second Antioch in the West. To expand the gospel to the other ends of the earth that direction. But here's the problem. There are divisions in the church. 
divisions relating among their um, among their ethnicities, among their cultures here that are that are undermining their understanding of the gospel and its mission. The Romans themselves there would have thought themselves cultural Greeks who would look down on those who would be barbarians, foolish and uncivilized. There would be a cultural superiority which would, which would be detrimental to the progress of the gospel of the God who is no respecter of persons. And so Paul is taking an approach here, using wisdom not to stir undue contention here, but he wants the readers to understand Jew and Gentile as one in Jesus Christ. And he wants to understand their roots in Israel and the Jewish people and God's special favor of Israel who received Moses' law from God and how God had chosen Abraham's family. And yet, the Jews themselves had this issue with cultural pride as well, too, didn't they? They construed in their minds who were insiders and outsiders. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, those things were not correct. And Paul wants them to understand that anyone who gives allegiance to Christ, who's received the saving work of Christ, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, belongs to God's people, this church here. Because if righteousness is, is, is just restricted to those who keep Moses' law, then Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved. But God promised to bless all nations through Abraham's Offspring here, and so Paul is really what he's what he's doing through this book is he is slicing and he's trimming and he is shaping off pride in the church that produces divisions. There's a dishonoring of God and the gospel that is happening when pride and divisions happen in the church, and so he warns them and reminds them and he connects them and he shows them that they need to reorient what is valuable in their eyes according to what God has seen as what is valuable in God's eyes, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God through Christ accomplished what he needed to accomplish in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he wants the Romans, this church in Rome, to see God's glory is at stake in everything they do, because he wants their company, he wants their support, he wants them to go with him, to send people out with him on this journey and support on the way to Spain. You see, ancient Romans like us have cultural blind spots, don't they? That's why Paul's writing this letter. He wants to support this mission to Spain. You might wonder, well, what's the big deal about getting to Spain here? I mean, what, what would that take? Well, listen, this is more than just saying, hey, Paul, come in and show us some slides on the screen about where you want to go. And hey, we might throw some money your way, or we'll pat you on the back on your way out. This is way more than that. Paul's team needed to trek on foot over a thousand miles past the southern Alps and the Italian Pyrenees Mountains, or travel by ship, which is just as dangerous. Prayer was needed, but so was money and co-workers. He couldn't assume their support for God's heart for the nations that this pride was there. And so this gospel here exposes the issue in the heart and how the power of Christ triumphs over that here. And so really this letter here is 
a letter to motivate evangelism, to motivate mission, to motivate churches to join in God's mission to all nations, all cultures, all generations, to slay apathy and feelings of superiority. Because it undermines the church's mission when we use what culture uses to define who's in and out. God's kingdom expands the size here of potential insiders, doesn't it? It includes people from every nation and social group, skateboarders and senior citizens and fishermen and hunters and you name it, right? God calls out people from every group through his gospel and invites them to respond and believe. And so what the issue is here is our view of the gospel and the church in relation to that shapes our sense, our sense of outward mission. The way these Romans saw themselves, or these Jews saw themselves, would determine how they would glorify God by participating in his mission to the nations. And so, we saw a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 7, that God's given a king, and this king has a kingdom, which includes the nations. This king descended from the seed of David. He's royalty. He's declared to be the son of God with power by his resurrection of the dead. And he's the one who commissioned Paul, and commissioned us in the ascension. Paul thanked God last week we saw in verses 8 through 17 for the Roman church and the desire to see them so that they would establish them in the gospel, he says. In verse 11, to impart some spiritual gift, to establish them, to be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both you and me, that brings all of this together and reduces divisions. He says, I want to come to you so I can have some fruit among you also, even among the other Gentiles. And he says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and unwise. What he's saying by that, he's not saying he's in debt like someone gave you some money here and you got to pay him back. It's more like this. God gave him a $100 bill and he's supposed to give that $100 bill to other people. He's supposed to pass it on. He's supposed to see that thing cashed here. And so he, he wants to speak to these house churches in Rome to get them to the tuning fork here of God's gospel. And so in verse 15, he says, Church at Rome, I'm as much as in me is, I'm ready, I'm eager to preach this gospel, this good news to you that are at Rome also. Why? Why is this pulsating in his heart? Because the gospel is, verse 16, the power of God unto salvation. It's not just an idea, it's a power here. And the evidence of this is that there's people in this Roman church where this check has been cashed, so to speak. They, they've seen the, the work of the gospel at work, and God still has more work to do that, and they're sanctifying here, but they've come to Christ. Power of Christ is there. And he says the access to this gospel here, that is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the access to this here in verse 17 is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, it comes through belief. 
The access to the power of this gospel that produces righteousness or being like God is through a constant trust in his promise. The just shall live by faith. Now, verses 18 to 20. Here's the problem. Why is this gospel necessary? And so verses 18 through 32, as Jason read here, show us why we need the power of the gospel. And I just want to warn us this morning. It's a real temptation to pass over sin. It's a real temptation to pass over the wrath of God. It's a real temptation to get people real quick to the good news. And Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus has conversations with people, he's poking at their idols. He's showing them what's wrong in their heart. He's indicating there's some bad news in their relationship with God. And friends, as we look at these verses, we should not make the same mistake that those Jews in Rome would have made Seeing this and nodding their heads and saying, yep, the world's like that. What a bunch of messed up fools. And instead, we need to see our own hearts. And we need to see the default position of our heart without Christ. That we're looking into the rotting sewer of a heart that shows the need for the power of the gospel of Christ. In other words, in order to be saved, you've got to see we're lost first. Jesus came not to those who thought they were righteous already, but to those who knew they needed his righteousness, that they were not okay. And so in verses 18 through 32, he unpacks the condition of the human heart, that our hearts are basically a factory for idols. And so he says this in verse 18. For, always important to understand those connecting words. For, why? Gospel is the power of God and salvation. Right? Everyone who believes. Condition there. Just shall live by faith and receive the righteousness of God. Why? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or hold down, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do we need the power of Christ? Paul says because we are under the wrath of God. And he wants us to look into the septic tank of the human heart without the power of Christ. He's going to show us that we are captive and we need a free movement of God. And he's not going to get to the good news very quick. He's going to spend the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, telling us, be quiet and listen. So good this little. Because it's through the holiness and righteousness of God that sins revealed in our hearts. And it shows we need Christ. Why do we need that? We're captives, we're bondage, we're in bondage, we can't free ourselves, we are slaves, we have an old core. An old core. He says we're under the wrath of God. Sometimes we think of wrath and anger, and we, we immediately conjure up in our minds people who have bad tempers, right? They're like ticking time bombs, and they're just spontaneous here. But that's not God's wrath here. 
God's wrath is a controlled anger against sin. And by the way, it is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. I could care less is the opposite of love. This is an expression of his protection of his love here. Anger is God putting a limit to destruction to his creation. Anger is saying, I'm going to let you go and you crash and burn here. This will expire. And so he says in verse 19, the wrath of God revealed against the sin, those who hold down the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. First thing I want us to see this morning, number one, is that God gave light. God gave light. Remember how we started in the book of Genesis? God crowned us with glory and honor. He gave us dominion over creation. He made us in his image, his perfect image bearers, to image out God's representation over creation, walk in close friendship, daily in creation. That's what God did. He created you. He created Adam so that we might spend eternity glorifying him by enjoying him forever. He did this not because he had some need that he couldn't satisfy. God has no deficiencies or things he lacks. He's completed himself. He's overflowing in happiness and joy and the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. You can think of God like a mountain spring. God's not a watering trough that you've got to fill up. God's a mountain spring. You know what's unique about a mountain spring? It overflows. It supplies others. A watering trough, you've got to fill up with a pump or a bucket brigade, right? And if you want to enjoy a watering trough, you've got to work hard to keep it full. If you want to enjoy the worth of a mountain spring in Maine, you know what you do? If it's pure, you get down on your hands and your knees and you drink to your heart's satisfaction. You receive refreshment and strength. And you go back down in the valley and tell people what you found. They're on Mount Pleasant, right? Mm -hmm. You see, the thing is, God gave us light. And that light here is Himself. Look what it says in verses 18 through 20. What may be known of God in creation is revealed, manifest, and God showed it on them. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We can see aspects of God in creation. Namely, Paul says, His eternal power and His Godhead. And he says, so that when they were without excuse, God gave light. He gave light. And whoever seeks that light, God gives more light. Right? Creation doesn't save us. Me walking out in the mountain and seeing a beautiful vista and saying, wow, there must be a God. That doesn't save me. But it's a receiving of the light in which God gives more light. But the problem is, we stop there. We ran from light. We ran from light. Look what he says in verse 22 and 23. 
who ran from light, who ran the darkness. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain, empty in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible, the purity of God, into an image made like to corruptible man and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols that looked like them or things that they saw. Here's the problem. It sounds like, in verse 21, that God's wrath just comes in response to some bad manners. People just didn't say thank you to God. Kind of what it sounds like, right? There's more to it than that. Paul's saying, we're plagiarists at heart. We take what God has made and we pass it on as our own. We don't acknowledge how we need God seek after God, but we claim to be independent. We like this illusion here. We make ourselves little gods, and we like to call the shots and decide what's right and wrong to this reality that creation speaks of. And we're not grateful because we don't accept what he's done for us and around us, and we don't act on that light, and we run away from the light. One of the best definitions of sin, the simplest three-word definition of sin that just covers every time I, I think about it and try to say, no, it could be it always gets back to this. It's, it's, it's so true. It was from Ravi Zacharias. I heard him say that sin is a violation of purpose. Violation of purpose. And it's a simple statement, but very profound. If you think back to any sin that you could list, you can trace every sin back to that. And you get idolatry and us trying to be God every time. Every time. The problem is we were standing in light and we turned tail and ran back into the dark cave. That's where we were apart from the power of the gospel. Sin, dishonoring God, acting shamefully, self-exaltation, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And, and human sin makes God look bad. Tells lies about God. It distorts His glory and His honor, His rightful place, His exalted King and wise Creator. Before we knew Christ, we didn't share God's perspective on glory. We treated God as if He were not infinitely precious, infinitely wonderful, infinitely praiseworthy, and we treated Him as ordinary. And we even went as far, whether we say it or said it or not, we thought it contemptible for him, especially when things in our life look bad. Later on in verses 29 through 32, you're going to see humanity's shameful disregard for God. You're going to see the revealing of people's glory standard without God at the center. You might say, so what happened to us? What happened to humanity when they stopped worshiping God as He truly is? And the answer is this. We did not stop worshiping. We did not stop worshiping. 
But we exchange the worship of God for the worship of things that he made, namely ourselves. You see, we're purpose creatures. We're purpose people. We've got to live for something. Everybody's living for something. There's got to be something that captures our imagination, our allegiance. That's the resting place of deep hopes we look for to calm our deepest fears. And whatever that thing is, we worship it and we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we can't live without, the addiction, the defining and validating everything we do. We live apart from God. Heard about a couple who had a couple boys, eight and ten, who were always getting in trouble, always getting in mischief. And they were at a loss as to what to do about their kids' behavior. So the mom heard about a pastor in town who had been successful in, in helping uh, parents. And so she brought the boys to him. And the, the pastor asked to see the boys individually. And the youngest one went first. And the pastor sat the boy down and he asked, where is God? And the boy didn't answer and the pastor said in a sterner voice, Where is God? And then he shook his finger at the boy and he asked him in a sterner, louder voice, Where is God? And at that, that boy ran from the room and he ran to a closet and slammed the door. And his older brother saw him come out and he followed him in. He asked what happened. The younger brother said, We're in trouble this time. God's missing and they think we did. <laughs> Humorous, but it's an illustration of humanity, isn't it? We take God out of the picture, or we make Him how we want to be. About the uh, about 2005 or so, there was a tone, an audible tone that was developed in Great Britain, because there were some teenagers that were loitering around convenience stores, and they were keeping customers away by some loud and obnoxious behavior. And so they invented this tone here that would annoy the teenagers and they wouldn't want to stay there if they could hear it. It was called a mosquito tone. Well, the picture that rings that tone, the mosquito tone, is too high for people over 25 to hear. And so what some of these kids did is they said, ah, we can use this. And somehow they turned the tone into a phone ringtone, or the tone in the phone ringtone, and they put it on their phone so they could send and receive text messages during class in school without the teacher knowing. The teacher couldn't hear it. And they were, kids were downloading it by the millions. It was called a mosquito tone. But you might think, well, how come people over 25 can't hear the mosquito tone? Inside our ears, we have these little tiny microscopic hairs that move with impulses of sound waves. And those hair movements, they send electrical signals to our brain. And as we age, those hairs get worn down, they can get damaged, so our hearing becomes less sensitive. And we lose the ability to detect sound at high frequency. And that is exactly, spiritually, what goes on when we turn away from light. Those sensitivity hairs get worn down, so to speak. It's harder and harder when you reject light to detect communication from God and His Word and be sensitive. These verses here tell us the reality of God and 
perceived in the wonders of creation, and all people can detect at least that information. But if we do not respond to the light that God gives us, we're dead in this. We lose the ability to sense God altogether. We lose spiritual ear here, so to speak. Christians, this can be true of us as well, can we? Have you noticed when your heart is hardened in patterns that you began rejecting more and more truth? My heart's broken right now over somebody who I'm trying to call back to Jesus. And the response was, I'm stubborn, just kind of leave me alone. And I know that that is in the Spirit of God speaking in their hearts. That's the old heart saying, I don't want light. And I fear for the trajectory of that. If we don't respond to God's specific promptings, we can learn here from this that it is a dark path. Listen. The ABCs of salvation, right? Number one, admit you're a sinner, right? Friends, we need to understand what our sin is. It is cosmic treason. We're trying to overthrow God as he is. It is rebellion against the rightful king. And when you're sharing the gospel and you're thinking about your own heart, you understand what sin really is. Make that clear. And in these verses here, up through 23 here, the idea is we better applications, we better respond to the light that God gives us. God has made us to respond to the Creator and to rule under Him in alignment over creation. But we became slaves to ourselves in creation. And look at the results of this. Thirdly here, we destroy ourselves. Destroy ourselves the rest of the chapter 24 to 32. Three times, verse 24, verse 26, and 28, God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them up. God removed what we didn't deserve anyway. That's what happens. He says, Okay, thy will be done. Go play on the power lines. Go ride that crazy bull. Go drive that truck with no brakes from the gas pedal to the floor. At least all these things have an end to it. Can I go on perpetually? This is the wrath of God here. To give us what we want too much. To give us over to the pursuit of things we put in place of Him. The worst thing that God can do to human beings in, in the present is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. His judgment is to give us over to the destructive power of idolatry and evil. Because when we sin, it's tearing the fabric of what God's made. And instead of finding blessing, it causes breakdowns in it. Look what he says, verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Notice where it starts, right? That will be done. Here's what you want. Your cravings, your desires of your own hearts, here's what you get. To dishonor their own bodies between themselves. It starts with the heart, verses way up. Who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
for this cause. Number two, God gave them up. God gave them up with the vile affections. Even in sexuality here, and he holds out an obvious case, right, of this is a perversion of God's purpose. Even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense, the payment, the penalty of that error which was mean, which is appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, which are not uh, uh, fitting, appropriate, being filled with all unrighteousness. And he lists these things here. And what you're going to notice here is the way they were made, the way they were created, they reduced life to their senses. Animals. And I need to correct that last statement. We reduce life to our cravings, our senses. We distort the image of God expressed rightly in male and female. There's a pull of our nature. Our heart's gravity is toward this black hole here. And this pool, the septic tank here that we're swimming in, we can't climb out of or don't want to here, this is what it looks like. The pastor told the story of when he was about 10 years old, his dad was a medical doctor, got a special gift from one of his patients. It was a beautiful globe with some shiny sequins, and it spun around on his face, and it would catch the light, and it played one of his dad's favorite songs, and his dad would demonstrate how it worked, and he grab it by the base and wind it counterclockwise and then let it go and it would spin clockwise and play this beautiful music and he said, you can't touch it. And then when the sun got away, he said, you can touch it, but I don't want you to wind it because you might break it. And it was a week later, his dad was at work and he found the globe, the kid found the globe and he brought it to his room. Remember, remember his dad saying, don't wind it up, but he decided to wind it anyway. He gave it a little twist and he let it play. And it played only for five seconds. And he gave it another twist and another twist and five more twists. And then the thing snapped and the globe separated from the base. And he tried to fix it. He tried forcing the pieces together. And he tried gluing it. <laughs> and he tried taping it. And they finally stared at the, at the two pieces of the globe that he, every time he tried to fix it, it got worse and worse beyond repair. And he went in the closet and he shut the door and he hid, just like Genesis 3. Our little kingdoms are like that broken globe. Twisted too far. You can't put it together. Perversions of sexuality that, would, that are a gift from God to be reserved for marriage between a male and a female, husband and wife, for life. Spreads out to society, right? Wars, strivings, health. All the glue, tape, and positive vibes can't put it back together again. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, 
murder, quarrelings, deceptions, malicious behavior, gossip. And look at these verses, 29 and 32. Backstabbers, haters of God, a stubbornness, proud, boastful, inventing new ways of sinning, disobeying their parents. Refuse to understand, they break the promises, they're heartless, they have no mercy. And verse 32 says this, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. And they do them anyway. Even worse, they encourage others to do them too. This is what happened. This is what happened. You notice a lot of these things that are relating to other people. There's a warped sense of community. God created this poor community in the right way, right? To lift up God, to reflect Him to others. And look at this. By the way, goes every from everything from homosexuality to some sins that we kind of would say that's not that bad. It's everybody, doesn't it? Because every sin can be traced back to exchanging God for a lie. Friends, here's the thing. If you do not know Christ with a living relationship, and you look at these verses here, and the truth here of what God has said, that this is you apart from Christ, the power of the gospel has nothing more to say to you. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? You must come to terms with where your heart is apart from Jesus Christ. You are lost in your sins under the wrath of God. And we're going to look in chapter 2 about Jewish people who had the very word of God and heard it every Sabbath. And God held them to a higher standard because they had more light than anybody. And they kept pushing it away and pushing it away. Wouldn't respond to it. So many might say, well, that's what's wrong with the world. But look at myself. I'm not as bad as others. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great defender of the faith in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he shared the story of one time while he was staying at a hotel at the Italian Riviera, he had several conversations about the Lord with two English businessmen, both of whom um, claimed to be atheists. <clears throat> and the first insisted um, that the other guy had been unfair in his business. And one evening he said to Schaefer, well, if there's a guy, he must accept me because I'm better than that guy. And Schaefer said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, look at that man over there. He's just a nasty, dirty businessman. I'm better than he is. And about five minutes later, Francis Schaefer was talking to the other guy. And he said, if there's a God, I'm going to be all right. And Schaefer said, why? And he said, well, I'm better than others. I've got two sisters, and I know my wife is taking care of them. And friends, when you talk with people about spiritual things, they're often going to say something like that, right? I'm better than other people, so I'll get by. And friends, apart from Christ, whether you're a child in this room, 
or whether you're somebody who's come to services here for the last 50 years, and you do not have a heart made right with God through the gospel, you are under God's wrath and condemned for eternity. And that is where you will continue to go unless you receive by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, His gospel, His good news of Jesus who died in your place for your sin. This chapter we're reading about, Jesus was treated like that at the cross, wasn't he? And for those who place their trust and their confidence in Christ alone, they receive the righteousness of God and they live by faith in that righteousness. So there's a call to respond in faith. To see where you are apart from Christ respond to Jesus. And I'd love to have a conversation with you at the end of the service. Holy Spirit's been pecking away at your heart. And he's saying, that's you, that's you, that's you. Running away from light, running away from light. He's calling you home. He's calling you the gospel son. Turn from the emptiness of this. Turn to the fullness of Christ. And all believers would say amen to that, right? But yet, but yet, we can find ourselves living this way in subtle ways. And you can find yourself living in this in subtle ways. You're not living in the faith of the gospel. You're not living in line with what you first believed, right? You're not believing and acting on this power of the good news of Christ over the power of sin. That's why Paul's going to get to Romans 6, right? Reckon yourself. And it gives us humility and freedom to ask, are there places in my life where I'm exchanging what God has said for a lie? What idols are jostling for position with the creator of my heart and life? In envy or slander or lusting? You name it. In my anger, what makes me angry? What do I do with that anger? All these things and more indications that we're worshiping not the one true God. Something other than God has become our master. But what does it look like to depend on God in that particular area and arena? How would my love be different? How would my life be different if I praise my Creator in His glory and see Him as He truly is rather than serving the desire? Or a created thing. We're all slaves to somebody. We're all serving somebody. We're either serving as slaves of what God's made, creating things, or for the servant of Jesus Christ, who's bought our hearts with the blood of his cross and the gospel.
And when that's true, everything else will fall in place, right? Now I can look at created things as a way to glorify God, to bring glory to God. I can have victory over food, because I can see it rightly ordered. I can have victory over my sexual lusts, because I understand that God gave them to be exhibited in marriage between God and between a man and a woman. You name it, right? My anxieties and worries can be replaced with, I'm trusting the creator of this universe. But without this, and acting in faith in this, this is the temptation of the fault nature of our heart. So I wonder this morning if you bow your head and close your eyes. And God's revealing things in your life where you're replacing this truth with lies. There's something that 